Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We are in Galatians chapter 6. It looks like we'll have about three more sermons, and we'll be finished with Galatians, and then we'll have an Advent series, and then I'm thinking after the first of the year, maybe a Old Testament, one of the smaller prophets, and then maybe Hebrews. I don't know. I'm open to ideas. If it's a good one, I'll listen. So we've seen in Galatians that you begin in the first four chapters focusing on the freedom um, from wrath and hell and God's judgment we have in Christ in our minds, and that we don't have to submit to the nitpicking of others and what they think you need to do in order to be a better Christian. You're totally free. It's wonderful. Then in chapter 5, he's moving from that freedom to the mature use of it and how we shouldn't abuse it just to serve our own lusts, but to, in love, serve one another. And in chapter 5, that was kept more general. And now in chapter 6, we're going to get to a specific situation probably in the church in Galatia, people caught in sin and how to help them. So freedom in Christ, don't abuse it, generally use it to love one another, and here's some specific ways is where we're going. So Luther says here that we are seeing our duty of supporting the weak and restoring the fallen. So how do we bear each other's burden, particularly when we're caught in sin? So here's Galatians 6, 1 to 5. Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will bear his own load. Let's pray. Father, your law, your law is incredible. Teach us to meditate on it all day. And so, God, give us a faith to take this with us. Father, to know your word is to know more than many others. It's to understand more than even the aged. And uh, so, God, please teach it to us now. Help our taste for it to be uh, a, a greater delight than anything else in this world. And so, God, we ask now for help in hearing your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you guys, kids, Zacchaeus, you know that everybody loves it. Zacchaeus was a, right, he was about five foot six, probably. And uh, you remember, he was caught in sin. He was a tax collector who defrauded others. He collected more than he should. He took advantage of those that were weak. And then, but he had a desire to know Jesus. <laughs> so remember, he climbed the tree. He looked, and you remember Jesus came to him. He didn't rail against him. He didn't blast him. He said, I'm going to come to your house today and led Zacchaeus out of what he was enslaved in. Did it very gently, 
very kindly, and Zacchaeus, you remember, said he would pay restitution many times over what he defrauded. That's something of what we're looking like at in our text this morning. You'll remember earlier, specifically in the first four chapters, that Paul is not pulling any punches. He is very direct, very hard in dealing with the problem of those who are lying to the church in order to get people to follow them by proposing an alternative, abhorrent gospel. And Paul just thunders against them. But here, he's much more gentle. Here he's dealing with what is very common in the church, that there is always going to be in all of us the potential just to get caught in sin. And that that issue is to be handled very gently, very tenderly, very patiently, without any pride thinking that we're better, but constantly remembering that uh, he fell yesterday, as Augustine said, I might today. That, that should be the tenderness with which we help each other. But we must help each other. And so Paul is going to simultaneously deal here with the temptation in the church to never deal with sin in each other's lives. Just turn a blind eye, act like nothing has ever happened, be permissive, and walk by it. So we can't do that. Or the temptation to just be proud and arrogant and harsh and always focused on the problems of everybody else. And so kind of be busybody, mean-spirited, that kind of thing. Neither of those are acceptable. There's a, a, a better way, a gospel way, a, a way that's pleasing to God where we neither overlook the sin, we help each other, we bear the burdens of those caught in sin, but we do it remindful that we're no different. And so that's what's happening here. You have this dance in your own households, don't you? You know what happens if you just let sin go unrestrained in your children, right? Sometimes you'll think, I don't want to be harsh. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I just, and you don't deal with it. That's a big temptation today. But you also know what happens if you're constantly nitpicky and harsh, controlling. You don't want either of those. You, we do want to deal with the sin in our own households, in our own lives, but we want to do it carefully. There's a buzzing. You all hear that? I wonder, should I take the handhold? What do you think? Yeah. Handheld? No? It's not that bad? Should we have a vote? Here's church congregational. Do this? It's gone? That's because it's this now and not this. Okay, this is fine. Okay, so there are lies that Paul is dealing here with. There's a lie of don't judge it doesn't matter what others do in private. It won't affect anybody else, which is absolute hogwash. Right? Uh, and notice in verse 2 that he says that doing this hard work fulfills the entire law of Christ. We're not excused from this work. This is the fulfillment of Christ's law. Now, that's in contrast to the law in the time of Moses, where you just had hundreds and hundreds of regulations about every area of life. 
And those are very constraining, very oppressive. But now being freed from that in our conscience, there's one law. It's love. And here's where the rubber reads the road of how we're going to fulfill it. All right, so there's two parts to our text, verses 1 and 2, the command to bear burdens, and then verses 3 and five, three through 5, kind of how to do this uh, dealing with your own pride. And one of the remarkable things about this, he spends all of his time dealing with those who are going to try to help and how to do it and not really any directions for those caught in sin. <laughs> so the attention is on the heart and the motives and what's going on in the life of the one attempting to help and not the one caught. So very tender to the one caught uh, and and giving directives, commands to the ones trying to help the one caught. All right, so the word caught there, if anyone is caught. So here we have the reality that sin will always be in the church. We're not ever trying to make a completely, utterly pure church, nor, as we've said many times, where will your life or my life ever be free of sin? We just saw this in chapter 5. There's a war going on within each of us who love Christ. Christ has given us new desires that are pleasing to God the Father, and yet right there alongside is the temptation to do what just pleases ourselves, just to gratify our own lusts. And sometimes, though, a pattern of behavior of in one of our lives will be like we're just surprised and caught in it. And there is a sin or a, a pattern that has gotten hold. And the devil, as you know, and his demons are constantly at work trying to entrap us. And our flesh is glad to go along. And so what do we do for each other in that? Now, one of the things you see here is the one who's caught can't free himself. He's going to need the help of the other. And what I want you to know is that this is what every church should be doing for each other. This is like church 101, these verses. We just celebrated last Sunday, if you're aware, All Saints Day. It's a Reformation Sunday, where we remind ourselves again of those faithful Christians who came before and sort of a Hebrews 11, remembering that there were many who suffered greatly for the truth of God's Word. And one of the recoveries that was made during the Reformation was church discipline. I know that sounds odd, but we're the members of the local church began to be one again, uh, once again concerned for how we were living in each other's lives for Christ's sake. That pastors and elders once again paid attention to the sheep and gave themselves to the care, particularly where we were caught in sin. And so what you see here in Galatians 6 should be the norm. It should be constant in the church that we help each other deal with our battle with sin. It shouldn't be unique. It it shouldn't be rare. Because again, you and I are going to be constantly dealing with sin in our lives. We don't want to be a part of a church where we lie. Where the lie is, 
I'm good, and you're good, and everybody's good. You've all had it where you look around and wonder, why does everybody seem like they got it together, and I don't? It's just not true. Everybody around you is struggling as much or more than you. Do you believe that? All right, maybe you are having a rough time in your marriage and you just only knew. Look around and wish, I wish I had a marriage like if you only knew. So we don't want to be a church that lies because that's oppressive. There's nothing more oppressive than being a part of a group where you constantly have to lie and pretend. And so Paul is painting for us a much more beautiful picture. It's very relational, this. The church that has to pretend is not relational. There aren't actually relationships. There's not actually any intimate, deep, relational connection in churches that have to pretend. Just like in marriages that have to pretend. There's no more relationship. Or friendships that have to pretend. It's not really a relationship. So what he's painting here is a picture of actual, genuine, familial relationships that matter where we care for each other enough to get into the muck with each other. And Paul speaks of this as bearing one another's burdens. That word burden is similar to what you've been learning in Pilgrim's Progress where Pilgrim has this heavy burden. It's like carrying rocks in a pack. When we went to the men's wilderness trip, uh, Jeter came along, and I was concerned with taking a younger guy if he could carry his own load. And so I weighed his pack, and then I lied to him about how heavy it actually was. <laughs> You know, because I knew if I told him how heavy it was, he'd say, I can't carry that. But then he put it on and carried it the whole portage. Right. Now, that's not exactly what he's talking about here, but that's something of what he's talking about here. In one sense, we, we have to help each other carry that. We have to distribute the weight. He didn't have to carry everything. I had to carry my load. Others had to carry the load. We had to bear the burden together. That's what we want to do here. This is a true church. And one of the things we should think of is whatever program you're involved in in church, whatever event or ministry, this should be at the heart of it. So I think the ladies, you'll have your Christmas thing coming up here, right? What do you call that, Claire? Christmas tea. Okay. Christmas tea with the ladies. There should be a component of it where you all are trying to Look at each other and figure out how you can be helpful to each other. It's not just about tea. It should be a, how do I bear burdens here? Who looks like they are in trouble here? This should be part of every program. This should be part of Awana. We should be not nitpicky, not in others' business, but shepherds looking at people who may have a problem. If you're a farmer, you're always looking at the cattle why is that one limping? Wow, that one looks bloated. Oh, good. Praise God, that one looks better. And so that's what should be a part of every program you're involved in here. When you're in the nursery, when you're in your men's Wednesday night Bible study, when you're in your neighborhood small group, that's the lens we should be looking at. Again, 
I'm not saying nitpicky here. I'm not, not saying, we'll get to this in a moment. You're not like up on high, superior, looking down on others, but it's you care about each other enough where you go, huh. He looks like something's up. And you go towards that. Now, as I said, Paul spends most of his time here helping those who want to be helpful, to be helpful. There is a book about missions a few years ago, Helping Without Hurting. That's the premise of this text. How do we do this but not make it worse? Because, you know, there's no problem you can't make worse. And sometimes if you step into a situation like this, you can be unhelpful as you try to be helpful. So he, 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 he's going to teach us that, and he does it with several key words so that we might not have like holy Joes and holy Janes who come down from on high to help the rest of us. The first one, of course, is gentleness in a spirit of gentleness. Oh, actually, the first word is spiritual. Let's do that one first. You who are spiritual, what does that mean? Where does that make you go back to in the book of Galatians? Just before this, Pastor Jeff preached it. 5.22. That this, this, this is talking to every Christian that there should be a kind of spiritual frame of mind, a walking with Christ. It's just talking about being a normal Christian. Right? This is talking to Christians. You could substitute the word here, Christian. You who are Christian. You who are disciples, you who are walking with the Lord, not you who are perfect, not who you got it perfectly together, not you who don't struggle with any sinful desires, not you who haven't sinned in the last 10 days. It's just you that are normally, regularly walking with the Lord, attending to your spiritual life. You who are Christian, you are given this command. So another way to say it is spiritual there should doesn't exalt you. It, it just includes you. If you're a Christian, you have this obligation. You have this duty. Every Christian. Now, the way that you should go about it is in the spirit of gentleness. We're going to get to it a little bit later that in verses 3 to 5, the issue of pride in this. And if a proud person is trying to help restore somebody else in sin, they'll often do it harshly and impatiently and rudely where if we are humble before the Lord, knowing that we too could be just the same, that we require the same amount of God's grace as everybody else, that we do this gently. Now, the difficulty there is that when you hear gentle, you might mean like never actually ever getting around to the point. Do you know what I mean? Because our age is such a permissive age, because the default failure of our day is to not ever do this at all. When you hear gently, I fear that you might hear, like, just dance around it and never actually let the person know that there's sin. That's not what he's saying here. If you, again, would review how Jesus dealt with sinners, he said it straight. He never danced around it. In fact, most of his interactions with people caught in sin were very brief. 
very simple. Here it is. Go and sin no more. And so we do have to be gentle. We do have to realize we're just the same. There's no sin which any man has done that another man might not do the same, said Augustine. So there is a gentleness in this and patience, but that does not mean direct, a lack of directness, a lack of frankness. We need to have both about us. So parents, one of the things we want to constantly remind you of is when you're dealing with the sin of your children, like, don't make that, you be gentle and be kind, but don't make it an interrogation. Don't ask questions when you know what's happened. Do you know what you did? No, you know what you did. Don't don't make it harder or longer than it has to be. Son, you lied. I love you, but you lied. Just deal with it frankly. Deal with it gently. And then restore. That's what we want to be for each other. If you notice a pattern of behavior of somebody, you want to go to them gently for the goal of restoration. Now, that word restoration there means like to set a fracture. It has to do with putting something back in order that is out of order. That's how we should view sin in our lives. It's a disordering. It really messes things up. And our heart when we help people in sin is just to try to get it back into order. Not perfectly, not according to our exact pattern, but just gently trying to restore it. Now, you know when you set a bone, it's going to hurt. But there's relief coming after it. So this is never going to be painless. But it should lead to strength and restoration. That's what we're getting at. All right, so that's a bit of how we help without hurting. And this is all of our business. In fact, when we come to each other in a church membership covenant, we are covenanting to do this with each other. None of us are exempt from that. This is our work. You remember in Matthew 18, this is famously the place that you go to when you want to know how to do this well. The context of that chapter is all about how to help each other with sin. This is where Jesus says, listen, if you've got 100 sheep and 99 are doing well and one is left, leave the 99 to go find the one. It's right after that that Jesus says that if, if a brother has sinned against you, go to him. So the context there is relational sin, and you should go to it. But here it's expanded to just say if anyone's caught in sin, and you are a brother or sister in the church, and you see it, and you observe it, you notice something's out of joint, you should go. And so this always begins very privately, prayerfully, carefully. And you're always going to have to make judgments. Do you know that? You're always going to have to look and observe, and you're going to be looking at it through the lens of, wow, that looks like it's out of joint. And you're making a judgment. She's not smiling much. What's happening here? He looks like he's pretty consistently angry with his kids. You could be wrong, right? You could be getting it wrong. But you should never be paralyzed to do what you should based on, I may be wrong. If you're wrong, then just, I was wrong. But it begins always very privately, very humbly. You want to keep it as small and private as possible. Now, gossip has to do with talking about somebody else to other people with no good reason. 
Gossip isn't if you're observing something and you're not quite sure how to handle that you go to a older, wiser sister, brother, and saying, hey, I'm observing this. What should I do? That isn't gossip. That's like humbly trying to do it the best you can so you know you need advice. You can talk to other people about it, provided it's private, it doesn't go anywhere, and it's for a good reason. But you want to keep it private. You want to keep it humble and gentle. And the whole point is this restoration. So if you go to somebody and they say, yeah, you're right, it's done. Praise God. You've earned a brother. You've earned a sister. It's over. You don't have to go anywhere else with it. But in Matthew 18, if they don't agree and it's obvious that there's sin here, then you widen it. Maybe you bring an elder. Maybe you bring another godly sister. And you try to bring that greater pressure for the sake of restoring the limp. Have you ever seen somebody who's actually physically injured acting like they're not injured? They're limping all over the place. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. No, No, you're not fine. So you bring another person to kind of help you say, you're not fine. And if they don't, li- if they listen, it's over. But if they don't listen, then you, it says bring it to the church. So you probably bring it to the entire elder board. We would take it. And if that doesn't result in repentance, we'd bring it to the entire church. There's a process here. But here, it starts very private, very personal, very individual, with the hopes only of restoration. And it is the sign of great spiritual apathy in our day that this never, ever happens in most churches. Ever. I mean like never. The only discipline that happens in most churches are when the big, elite, powerful members don't like what the pastor is doing. They'll never say boo to any other member in the church unless you're sitting in their seat. But when the pastor says something or does something that they don't don't approve, they'll be all over the pastor. And so they feel great freedom to rebuke the pastor, but they'll never deal with each other's sins and love at all. And we've just got to be the exact opposite in this, brothers and sisters. We've got to be exact opposite in this. All right, so that has to be the normal true church, but the one thing we have to be aware of as we do this is our own pride. So look at verses 3 to 5 again. If anyone thinks he is something, when he's actually nothing, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And we'll get to that. Then, dealing with comparison, let each one test his own work. And then his reasonableness will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. We'll get to that. That's also humbling our pride. And then five really does it. For each one will bear his own load. Okay, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is the sin of pride that's common among the saints where you see yourself above more important, so self-focused and self-aware. Look in verse 3 for a good definition of pride. You think you're something. A peacock. You notice in your teenagers that they're pretty aware of their reflection in any surface. Um, so you'll have this consistent temptation as a Christian to think you're something. Now, this is true of all of you. Like, don't be in doubt as to whether or not that's you. It's you. It's me. It's every one of us. 
from youngest to oldest, newest to most enduring member here, everybody is going to struggle with thinking you're something. And there's a few ways that you do that. The first is in, uh, addressed in verse 3, that you just in regards to yourself think you're something. And it says, when he's nothing, that too is a description of all of us. Now, it's a major thing in American Christianity to tell you that you're something, that you matter, and that you like to need to look in a mirror all the time like Jack Handy and tell yourself good things about yourself. Now, what does it mean that when we're nothing? What does that mean? Well, it, it doesn't mean that we actually have no value or no dignity or no worth. That's not what it's saying. It means that in the Matthew 18, 23 sense, this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. You remember, the slave went to the master, to the king, and he owed, does anybody remember the number? I think it was 10,000. It was like 10,000 days wages. It was an unrepayable debt. And the king was going to sell him and his whole family to try to repay the debt. And the guy pleaded for mercy, and the king was moved with pity and forgave the entirety. That man was nothing, right? He was nothing in regards to the debt. And now he's forgiven, not because he's something, but just because of the mercy and pity of the king. And then you remember, he leaves the king's presence, walking back out, sees another fellow slave who owes him a couple of pennies and has him thrown in jail because he can't pay it. That man who was nothing thought himself something. That's what's going on in this verse. You and I owed before the creator of the universe, the eternal God overall, an unrepayable debt, and he forgave you at the price of the crucifixion of his son. Not because you were something, but because of his own mercy and pity. And then how dare we go out and interact with each other and think we're something. Be unforgiving. This is what's going on in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as what? As I forgive the debt of others against me. We're nothing in this regard. We're nothing but recipients of grace. And you'll never be helpful to people unless you live in that freedom of that reality. What he's saying is, God has accepted you based on Christ and nothing about you. And so how you interact with each other should be out of that place of incredible grace and freedom, not based on your own self-deceiving estimation of your greatness. So don't deceive yourself. Keep the freedom of the gospel before you. It was given freely, not because of your goodness or greatness, just because of Christ. Then in verse 4, you have the problem of the comparison of others. The pride that comes from those of you who are more spiritually mature beginning to think that by comparison, you're better. So Paul says, listen, in this work of helping people who are caught in sin be restored, you're going to constantly be tempted to think that you're better than, you're superior. And he's going to say, don't, don't look at each other in that way. Don't compare yourself, but just Be content with the work God has given you. Just look there. Test that work. Now, this verse is really something because it says, then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. This has to do again with your conscience. 
How many of you are ever satisfied with how well you're doing as a Christian in the work that God has given you? You each have your own work to do here. Your own gifts, your own talents, all of that. And what he's saying is just be content with looking at your own work and evaluating it. Don't, you don't have to do that for today. You don't have to compare. And he says, then you can just boast in yourself. Now, by boasting in yourself, what he means there is because of Christ, you can have freedom to rest after a good day's work. You don't have to get all bent out of shape that you're never doing enough. Just do what God has given you to do today. Evaluate your day. Ask forgiveness of your sins. Thank God for what you could do and then go to sleep and rest soundly, peacefully. You don't have to get all bent out of shape in comparing yourself to others. You don't have to get all bent out of shape by what you didn't do. Just do what God has given you to do. Try to do it faithfully. Try to do it by God's grace. Thank him at the end of the day. Confess your sins and then rest well. Be totally free in your conscience at what God has given you to do. You know, your Christian life before the Father isn't one where he's constantly condemning you. That's what he's giving you the freedom here. And then in verse 5, he goes to the end. The word bear your own load here is different than bearing the load in verse one, uh, in verse two. It's a totally different word. This has to do with when you die and at the end when Christ comes to evaluate the work that you've done. What he's saying there is no one else can be looked to in that day. It's just you and him. You're going to have to bear that yourself. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It just means that don't worry about so many other judgments of yourself. Don't worry about judging others' work. Just look to the day when Christ judges what you do. Now, this isn't the final judgment for eternal life or eternal death. This is for those who are in Christ. That's dealt with. You are accepted in Christ. This has to do with his evaluation of the work that he gave you to do with the gifts he gave you to do in the body he gave you and the reward you'll get in light of that. And he's saying, just look to that day. It'll help humble you. So what he's trying to do is humble your pride so that you can do this gently. Because proud people are often easily frustrated, never pleased, and angry. And I'm thinking here, maybe you as a spouse are like that. You're so easily irritated and nitpicky and constantly worried about these little things in your spouse. That's just pride. Or maybe you as a parent are every day visibly angered, maybe even enraged with your children. He's, that's a work God has given you. You're help bearing your children's burdens, but that kind of unrighteous anger, that's Pride. Or maybe you're constantly frustrated with people in the church. He wants to humble our pride so that we can be more helpful. All right, so let me close with this then. What we're seeing here, if you take a step back from it, is a church that has such deep, sincere affection for each other that they can't stand to see people caught in sin but want to help. It comes from a place of real, sincere affection. That's what's happening in these verses. This isn't lording it over. This isn't superior and inferior classes amongst Christians. This is 
everybody in it together. I see my brother. I see my sister struggling. And I can't help it because I love them. But to go towards them. Now, on the flip side, those who are caught in sin are often difficult to deal with. They don't want to have anybody say anything. Because, you know, the place that you're most tender will be the place that you're most get angry. And so, brother or sister, when you go to help somebody, don't think it's going to go well. It often won't. All right, let's ask God's help. Father, please make this effective. We don't want to be the church kind of people that just hear these things but don't do them. We don't want to leave here going, oh, I'm glad that's over, and not do anything about it. So God, make us prayerful for this. Give us a real affection for each other. Give us a shepherding instinct to care for each other, but not proudly, not out of our superiority, but of our, out of our sense of you giving everything you did for us, that we might be helpful to each other. And God, I pray that if anyone here is caught in sin, that they would actually be helped by each other coming out of this. And so God, please give us grace in this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.